Hi everybody, it's Megan. I am too excited about this episode. We were so lucky to get to sit down with Tammy Locke, who was talking to us about her extraordinary Netflix series that comes out on Friday. The show is based on her book, and they are both titled From Scratch. I want to read you a quick biography. New York Times bestseller, TV producer, actor, and screenwriter Tembi Locke has a passion for connecting with an audience both on the page and on screen. Her memoir, From Scratch, a memoir of love, Sicily, and finding home, is a 2019 Reese's Book Club pick, New York Times bestseller. Alongside her sister Attica and Hello Sunshine, she adapted the book as a limited series for Netflix release October 21, 2022. I was so lucky that I got to watch all eight hours of this extraordinary show, and I have to tell you, it's amazing. And it is going to be out on Friday, so we all get to see it soon. I was so grateful for Tembi's generosity and her honesty. You're going to love this episode. It's one of my favorites. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am wildly thrilled to be sitting down with Tembi Locke today. Tembi, thank you so much for being here. Megan, thank you for inviting me and having me here. I appreciate the work you do in the world, and I'm honored to be able to chat with you today. One of the amazing things about having this podcast is that I have relationships with people before they even know me. I have been following your world and your work since a shared friend of ours, my friend Sarah, alerted me to your beautiful book from scratch, which is now on October 21st going to be launched out into the world on Netflix in eight part series. Yeah. It's a limited, it's a limited series, eight episodes. It's a, it's a journey. It's like an eight hour movie, if you will. So I'm, I'm honored to be able to share it with the world and with viewers. And, and thank you for bringing me here to talk a little bit about that and the book and my experience, all of it. So will you just sort of dip in for us and tell us how do you come into the world of grief and loss? Well, my story is, I would say it's twofold. Grief began for me um, in really, I would say now looking back at the moment, my husband was actually diagnosed with a rare form of soft tissue cancer. Now, if you had asked me then, was I in grief? I would have said, no, my husband's alive. We're going through this thing. It's difficult. It's challenging. We were emotional. It was an up emotional upending in our, in our lives. But I would not have assigned the word grief to how I felt. What I now, however, know, looking back, is that that began something that we know and you will know, and maybe listeners here have heard the term anticipatory grief. Yeah. Right? You you can explain that as a therapist, sort of what that is. But effectively, from that moment, I was aware in a very real and undeniable way of his mortality, even though we all know that in the abstract, we sort of understand that that's a part of the human contract of coming into the world is eventually we will leave it, but we are not thinking about our dying or our you know, potential loss every day. We're not, we're not, we're not, we're not holding it front and center. That's but right. when that diagnosis came, because it wasn't like, oh, this is the kind of cancer that we can treat, cut out, and you go on about your life, right? It didn't have 
that there was not that medical expectation. It was like, we can try to manage this maybe and buy you more time. So I understood internally, emotionally, intuitively that I was staring at loss, the potential loss of my husband. And so I can now say, looking back, that a part of me was grieving. And I did that. And I was a caregiver for 10 years. For 10 years, I was his caregiver. And we went through the ups and downs of, 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 of cancer treatment. At times, it was more critical. And there was more crises. At time, moments, there was remission. But throughout it, I was holding a grief, an unexpressed grief. And then when he passed away, I was in the depths of just grief and true, the loss, like the physical loss of him, of his being, of the the sound of his voice, of his touch, of his laughter, of his energy, of his fatherhood, of his, his just everything was gone. And so that's how I landed in this space of, you know, as you say, grief and loss. It was, so I came to the table as a widow. I came to be a widow with a background of years of, of grief. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you use the word anticipatory grief and, and even anticipatory loss. It's one of those words that really helps people feel seen and known because I think we like things to have sort of the stark black and white lines. And there are some things in grief and loss that everybody can sort of pinpoint a before and after moment of like, this was the life I led before. And then we got the diagnosis or we got the news or we, or the event happened. And then the, this is the after. I think what happens is we live through those moments and then we look back and with perspective, we're like, damn, how did I, how did I even survive? Yeah. So the 10 years of it as a caretaker, I imagine you must have been able to build some supports around yourself. And by supports, that could be I denied everything or I ran every day. Can you tell us a little bit about what that looked like for you? Yeah, I will say I did all the things <laughs> because it was so long. You know, I was a caregiver for so long and I was I was 31 when he was diagnosed. So I really it was a, a pivotal part of my adulthood and my my emerging womanhood. I became a mother during that time. So I had to try lots of different tools as my life was constantly changing. So yeah, I was a runner and then I (laughs) ran so much, like I got a herniated disc and I stopped running and then I became a walker. I did yoga. I did the massage. I did sort of breath work. I did, you know, retreats and, and I did, you know, times in, in a yurt, (laughs) you know, lots. I mean, I, I literally, I had a network of friends who would, who would, you know, help me. Sometimes I could throw myself into work a little bit as an artist, as an actor, there was times I I did a lot of writing. I did painting. I mean, I tried everything. And then time, there were times when I was just shut down and there was really nothing I could do except to put one foot in front of the other, to show up for the doctor's appointments, to get the prescriptions, to, you know, help him up and down the stairs, to prepare a meal. You know, I remember a friend coming to visit me one time when Zada was really, really ill and she was dropping a meal off because, you know, I, I think someone had put a call out to the community of, of at my daughter's nursery school that we needed help. And so she was, dro- I'll never forget, she was dropping off bus with basil, lemon, and parmigiano. Like I would, and I remember my daughter was looking forward to it, right? So she comes to my, she pulls up to my house 
And I was outside mowing the lawn because we didn't, okay, so this is the bananas part of it all, right? I can't cook a meal, but I can mow the lawn. So part of it was my manic behavior because I didn't know what to do. And the law, and we, at that point, we were so overtaxed with the financial burden of raising a young child, nursery, school care, you know, sometimes, you know, I, you know, nanny babysitter care mixed with uh, all the other medicine, the sort of support, non-traditional support me- mechanisms we were giving my husband in the form of acupuncture and hyperbaric oxygen there. I mean, we we're doing yeah. everything that Love we it. couldn't hire a gardener. I was like, what am I going to do? Am I going to get my husband oxygen that will potentially prolong his life? Or am I going to hire a gardener to mow my lawn? I was like, I'm going to get the oxygen. So I guess I'm mowing the lawn. So here's my friend dropping off the pasta and I'm out there with the lawnmower. And she looked at me as though I were insane. And for a moment, I saw what I, my life must've looked like on the outside. And it startled me. Yeah. And it kind of like, I was arrested for a moment. I was like, Oh, my life looks like chaos. Yeah. And, and then I felt sad. I mean, I felt grateful to have the pasta, but I felt like, wow, we're really in it. Like we're in the depths of this. And she was like, can you not mow the lawn right now? Like she literally asked me and I said, I think you're right. I'm going to, I'm going to not, like I won't. She was like, we'll find someone to do that for you. And she did. Mm. And I was grateful, but I share that story just to give like a snapshot illustration of the kinds of managing that caregivers are doing young families who are living under the specter of cancer and or illness, whatever the, the, the chronic or terminal illness might be. And often there is one person at the center of that hub, not the patient, but the caregiver who is trying to sort of manage everything. And I was that person for years. Part of what I'm hearing when you're talking about it too, like that moment where you're looking out and in at the same time and saying, I must look totally crazy. I think the phrase that I used a lot when, when I had PTSD was, you know, this is the realest my life has ever felt because a lot of the normalcy didn't feel normal. It didn't work. Like I couldn't eat at a normal schedule and I couldn't sleep on a normal schedule. And so all the ways in which other people sort of stave off the French existential dread I couldn't do any of that stuff to make anything make sense. It all didn't make sense. And so it's funny that you say the lawnmower because what I blew the leaves across this tiny little patch of my lawn, I blew the leaves with a leaf blower that doesn't even work anymore and listened to Nora McInerney's terrible thanks for asking podcast, mostly because those stories felt worse than mine did. And so it just was like, well, those people seem to still be alive because they have recorded And what I appreciate in the story that you're talking about with your friend is that, that she showed up with love and care and that it felt like love and care, because I think one of the things that grievers talk about a lot, and I feel like it's, I feel like it's beautifully depicted in your book, both with the sort of complication on both sides with the families. I think that you can take the normalcy of other people and the way in which they approach you as, as criticism and real, it's really painful to have people going and getting Starbucks and then going to work and then going to the gym, like normal. When I used to do stuff like that 
And that's not available to me. And it's not available to you because you're a caretaker and it's not available to you because that, that kind of normal world maybe isn't something that you're ever going to exactly live in again. Yeah, I could, I, yes, I could spend a lot of time talking about the complicated ways in which my life for years, I had that experience of not being in alignment with what I, what felt like everyone else's life. Right. So you're running sort of, I felt like I was flowing against the current, but I was in inside of my own life. Now, one of the things that internally was very helpful is that inside of my my home, you know, my love with, with Sato and and Sato comes from being Sicilian born, being someone who was, had a, was sort of artistically inclined, who read poetry, who was sort of, he sort of had spent his life like pondering the existential things, right? So like in a way internally, we could talk about those things. Like I didn't have a partner who was shut down. Like he was willing to sort of hang out in this. So we would, he would like read Rumi, we'd read poetry together. We'd read Pablo Neruda together. You know, we would watch sort of like, you know, you know, neorealism films. And we, and that became a way together that we could sort of be in a joined, a conjoined space of sort of contemplating this big experience we were going through. And then at the same time, I would go to an audition as an actress here in Hollywood. And I'd see all the, you know, beautiful thespians and actresses and like gorgeous. And I was like, I haven't been to the gym in like a month. Like I am not this person. Like I, what is going on? And feeling jealous, feeling resentful, feeling maybe at times envy, if even, you know, and maybe that's too strong a word, but I just felt like, ah, like this isn't my life and I can't do that. And I remember hearing sort of like the just ambient chitter chatter in public spaces around things like, oh, you know, I didn't get this. this." And I was like, what is everyone kvetching about? Like, who cares? Like, do you really, you know, I will say there was many days where I sat in judgment of my fellow brethren, <laughs> my, brother, yes. my fellow oh, yeah. human beings. Oh, 100%. You people don't get it. You just don't get it. That's right. You know, and, and, you know, yeah, I, I, I specifically, I'm thinking you made me remember in your share of a birthday party. It may have been my daughter's fifth or maybe sixth birthday party. And everyone came to the birthday party. I managed to get the cake. I decorated the backyard. There was a pinata. It was like all the things. Like I showed up as the mom who could like throw the great birthday party in the midst of cancer, in the midst of it all. Yep. yep. And people arrived. And Sado, who was too ill, I left. I was like, you just rest. Just be present for the party. You do none of the prep. I got this. So when the people arrived for the party, everyone, of course, because he was the patient, people in our lives knew what he was going through. They were like, Oh my God, he looks so good. He looks wonderful. He looks all the things. I look like a hot Christmas mess. Mm-hmm. Like I was literally like, I barely showered and been able to pull my hair together before the guests arrived. And I remember thinking, I'll be damned. <laughs> you know, he gets all the wonderful compliments. Right. I'm, right. Like, I'm like, uh-huh. He's sitting there. He's sitting there. I'm doing the thing. Yeah. And so that's, I, you know, again, I, sh- I share that to say, it's okay. It's totally okay. If you have those thoughts that pass through your mind. I mean, I told him about it later. I was like, oh, so you get all the compliments and I just look like, you know, shit basically. And we could, at least with him, we could laugh about it. We could hold it lightly. I mean, I think you need that. Yeah. And hopefully you have someone in your life. If it's not the the patient themselves or your partner, someone, a best friend, a sibling, a coworker, someone that you can like 
let it all hang out with and kind of laugh is so necessary to get through these times. And, you know, what you're really reminding me and, and I think sharing with our listeners so generously is just the truth of the human experience, right? That there isn't a version of some Florence Nightingale who doesn't have all the hard emotional experiences. And a lot of the folks that I work with, and I had this experience myself, like, I just couldn't believe how angry I was about everything. And to sort of understand that like anger is just an electrical current that's lit up inside of you. It's not there to be judged. It's just one of the fires of emotion. But my anger really was directed outwards. You know, I had plenty of guilt and my own stuff directed inwards, but I sort of like hated everyone all the time. Maybe I'm not the most generous person in general, but I actually find people interesting. And when I have enough, when I have enough energy to look past what's in my own hands, you know, I'm interested and curious about people and probably have a lot of flexibility about who they are and how they show up. That was not my experience when I was deep in grief, deep in grief. I was sort of like, what did you just say? You know, I just sort of felt like everyone had the wrong values and the wrong perspectives and God forbid they asked me to do one thing for them because the, you know, the justice of being like, how dare you? Don't you know what my life is like right now? I mean, it was real. And, and I think it let me go slowly over time. But when I look back, I'm like, God, I was so angry. Well, you know, this is, this is one of the things. And, and so maybe this is helpful to, to listeners is, so I, unlike you, I was not always in touch with my anger, right? And I didn't express it. I, I had the feeling, but I blow past it, right? Because I was like, oh, well, and, and, and some of that is predates my grief and loss. That's a background. That's my personality that was imprinted early as a child. I was, I never kind of maybe had permission to sort of express my anger, even if you'd met me at seven, right? I was the kid who was like, no, it's okay. You know, I'm not upset. You know, I was that person. And and still to a degree, I'm that person, right? So, but I had the blessing of one person in my life who would tap me on the shoulder on occasion and go, it's okay to be Mm. it's okay to have your anger mm. you gotta let that out and I'd be like what are you talking about like well what no no, no what and I and I sometimes I would be like can you not like I'm actually okay I would actually and, and so in a way I would play out my anger with her <laughs> I'd be like I'm not angry right. I'm angry with you right. for suggesting right. that I might be angry so the reason. I, yeah but but I I came to understand over time that yes as you beautifully said Anger is just one of those fires. And so I'm not a unicorn on the planet who has no anger. Like that's an impossibility. So clearly it's there. I better get in touch with that fire. I better honor that fire because otherwise it's going to show up somewhere. Mm. And so over time, I began to, with intentionality, get to know and befriend my anger and to allow it a place to express itself so that it didn't turn inward in the form of depression because anger, anger unexpressed will turn inward in the form of depression. So find a place for, so if any listener out there is one of, is is a Tembi, right? Someone like me, (laughs) and there are a lot of people out there, right? Who were not, don't have permission always to express it. And by the way, I had to learn to practice this with my daughter who was seven when her dad passed. And I could see in her and her seven-year-old self, she had a hard time expressing her anger. So I would be like, we're going to have a pillow fight, grab the pillow, hit mommy 
as much as you need to with the pillow. Mommy's going to hit you back and we're going to just get it out, right? And we would play out that to release some of the energy. And I hope what I was modeling for her was a way to let it out as I was also trying to model for myself. And then I would do other ritualistic things to let out my anger because I knew it was one of those feelings that was a little, what I I wasn't as in touch with and you have to be in Mm. touch with it. I want to ask a little bit about writing the book. And I I do want to say to you that when I was reading it and it's not really a spoiler, right? We know that your husband dies. God, the writing of that period of time. I mean, it wrecked me. It wrecked me like the ugly Oprah, you know, all the things melting off your face. And I put the book down and I was like, I don't know if I can come back to this Mm -hmm. like that. This is And I think part of it is there's such a rich love story and Mm -hmm. in watching the Netflix, you know, it's eight hours. So it really luxuriates Mm -hmm. in letting us fall in love with both of you. And I feel like, I feel like you did that, you know, the story starts in Florence and you, you do that. You really demonstrate and show the, the magnetism of what draws you together. And it becomes this I don't know how to describe it, but like very small, crisp story of really it's the two, it feels like the two of you with some periphery folks and then with your daughter. And then, then in that particular scene, it just feels like it is the threads of every person that has ever mourned a person ever. You tell me about writing that and, and how writing came into the process of grieving for you. So first, the one thing I will say is that writing that part of the book was very hard. So when you talk about reading it and being like, I don't know if I can come back to this. Yeah. I could spend a whole, you know, if this, if we were just drilling down deep into the writing process, I would share with you the fact that that was a section of the book that one, I, I wasn't sure I, I I always hesitated with early on about whether or not to include it fully because I was scared that it might do the thing that you just said. The reader might stop and be like, whoa, okay, I'm not on board for this too much and like not read anymore. Yeah. But then I also understood that in order for the book to, to do, if order to, in order to fulfill my heartfelt desire and the purpose of writing the book and to be truly transparent in all things, it would be, I would do a disservice to the reader and the book did I, if I not, if I didn't just go there. So then on the page, I said, well, I'm setting the stage. I'm saying, Hey, here's what you can expect reader. We're going to go there in all the ways. And if you can hang out with me there, it's gonna, there's the promise of something beautiful, but we have to acknowledge this. And because that part of the book comes just after that chapter of the book comes just after I've given you all the love of the upstart, you know, that there's the love to come. So I'm holding two things side by side chapter bookend, the chapters go hand in hand. So it's all, I'm always, because I believe that's the way life is, is that both things are happening simultaneously. So that sort of two-handed approach to living is something I knew I had to sort of offer up on the page. So when we came to adapting the series, I understood the same thing is true. (laughs) We're now just on a different, it's a different medium. It's a different artistic form, but the same thing has to be true. And so just as in life, 
my world, and I think for many people, you have this great big life, right, that you're living and you're having, and it has all the people in it and the friends and the coworkers and the family and all the things. And then a diagnosis happens. Yeah. Things change. But with death comes things, life gets reduced down. And it becomes very intimate, very quiet, very interior. And that is a universal experience. It is. You're exactly right. And and so even though on screen you see what is happening to Amy and Lino and their daughter, Idalia, the three of them, that family unit, which is now forever changing and changed, but, and it is the experience all of us have in grief, grief feels like, I I explain it or I've talked about it as in those early weeks after Sato passed, I felt as though someone had locked me into a deprivation chamber. And what I meant by that, what I mean by that is that all of my senses felt cut, shut off and cut down. I felt like I couldn't smell, taste, feel, hear, sense the world in the same way, that I was in some siloed bubble chamber and the whole world just kept going around, but I couldn't, I couldn't navigate it in the way that I understood. And so I wanted to, to the degree that we could as storytellers, render a sense of that on screen. So sonically the sounds change, your feet, the silence falls over the episode, the characters. And, you know, that was one of the things that I, I, I we really hope, and, and I, I hope as viewers watch it, that they sense that, but they also feel, always know that there's the promise of something also yeah. there. Yeah, the hope, right? So, so when I went back to the words, it's because I couldn't couldn't stop thinking about the story, and that you know, again, what we're always trying to offer someone is the understanding that even though we haven't been taught how to do this, even though it's untenable and impossible, people seem to do it all the time, which means it's actually an innate human experience to survive. And that's when I came back to your words. It was, it was because I knew you survive and I, and, and already the loss that I felt on your behalf and, and with my own empathy from my own experience, you know, I, I just didn't want it to land there. Right. I wanted, I wanted there to be, to be more life that we get to live. And I wanted to tell you that. So I, I teach a grief writing class that's process to product, which is about processing writing for the purpose of processing through so that you can have your narrative, that you can say to somebody, my husband died of cancer, you know, six years ago and not have it destroy you the way that it does in those early days. But I use some of the description from your text to help people understand in the, in the period that we're talking about that grief is this five senses experience what I do in my J job is teach people about how, you know, the amygdala enlarges and it impacts the hippocampus. So I just sort of like talk about the neuroscience of why you don't feel like you can sleep or eat or all those things that happen to our brain as we're trying to relearn the world, literally relearn the world in a way that is totally new. 
but you have some language in there that is really, it's like the artist's language. It's the way in which an, you know, an artist noticed color and light and all of it's, it's in there and it's really tangible for people when I'm, when I'm saying, listen, here's how we want to think about this. You know, often the, the image that I give people is like grief is a little bit like walking around wet, everything that you're doing everywhere that you are is like uncomfortable in a way that it didn't used to be. And that no one else is uncomfortable or, you know, to the best of your knowledge. Well, thank you so much for, for, for bringing this conversation around to this because, because for one, one thing is that I knew as a writer, I was also writing a book that people might pick up who had never grieved before. Yeah, that's right. And so I wanted to communicate on the page, the full embodied experience of grief as I know it in my body. That's right. I think my background as an actor, yeah, who, you know, my stock and trade, my literal profession is to embody another character. And I have to do that with all of my senses. And I saw my grief in some ways as a new character in my life. Like not that I was playing the character, but that this was Something I had to sort of understand the same way if I'd gotten a script and I had to break down, I didn't know anything about this character I'm about to play. I was like, oh, grief has walked into my life. I don't know anything about grief. It has never hit like this. What the hell is this? So in some ways I was like, well, and it's not going anywhere. Like the, the sort of, you know, as I understand the world, (laughs) as it's been taught to me, like he's not coming back. And so the grief isn't going anywhere. And if it's not going anywhere, then I better get to understand. I better get to understand it. <laughs> Basically, I better get to figuring yeah. out what this is. And so when I began to write the book, so I spent years doing that, right? Yeah. And it was five years after my husband passed before I began to, in earnest, write with the objective of a book. That's right. I had been writing all along, processing my feelings, yeah. the exact thing that you teach your students. I had been doing that for myself, just in the form of journaling, right? And I was taking writing classes, again, not with the purpose of a book, but because I thought like, I need to wrap my head around this experience. Yeah. So when I came to write about it, I literally did what I do and what I have been trained to do as an actor, as I said, well, okay, what is the grief? feel like on my skin. That's and right. I would ask myself those questions that I take notes. Then I'd be like, what does it sound like? Take notes. What does it look like? Take notes. And then I would use that to sort of become the description of it on the page for the reader. So that if you've never experienced it, or if you're the person adjacent to someone who is deeply grieving and you read from scratch, you go, oh, oh, that's what, that's what the that's world feels like. Him? Oh, yeah. now I get it. Now I get it. So I felt like I, you know, in many ways, the book and the series are about translating experiences, right? At the literal level, sometimes of language, like there's language translations. There's the translation of like, what does it mean to be in a place you've never been? But there's the translation of what does grief feel like? And so I thank you for acknowledging that and, and for talking about it because it is, it's a real thing. And and disembodied grief, when we don't embody our grief, there's a cost to that. That's right. And as as I'm sure you know. Yeah. And and what I'm thinking about when you're talking about this is, you know, you're describing, I think, 
in artistic language, the same thing that we try to do in the therapy room, which is slow down and get very specific about naming and sort of claiming. I always think about it as like duck, duck, goose, you know, just sort of touching the like, oh, okay, well, my body feels rigid. You know, I have lower back pain. I haven't eaten properly in a long time. My, you know, I, I don't have the same sleep. I feel disconnected when I go places that that five senses experience sort of is the truest form of grief. And it's the thing that people are trying not to feel, or they don't know quite how to feel, right? Like they don't know how to get into it and be able to communicate. They'll just say, I feel crazy. And someone says, what is, you know, what do you mean? How can I help you? And like, so when you're describing it, you're describing it almost like the other side of the coin, which is to the artistic purpose of being able to communicate it for the sake of others, but really getting to know it for yourself. And there's a kind of therapy called IFS therapy that talks about our parts, all the different parts of us. So the part that's a mother and the part that's an actor and the part that's, you know, a dancer or whatever, the way that I feel about it is sort of like, I grew a grieving part. That it may have been there my whole life, but it really it had to come up and like drive the bus for me. And I hadn't really ever met it before. And, and, you know, my grieving part had a fair amount of anger that it came to drive the bus. And, you know, I'm three years out from my mom's traumatic death and that, you know, it's different now and it will continue to be different. It will continue to grow. And I think, again, just putting voice to that and letting people know that five years later, even mm-hmm. after doing a lot of process writing, there's still so much value in the product writing of the story. I want, yeah, right. I want to ask you about what the experience is like, because I think very few people, very few people live what you are living right now, which is watching your lived story go from book to screen. I mean, I have to tell you, I think Zoe Saldana is the most extraordinary actress ever. But when she came out in your wedding dress, Tembi, I thought I was going to lose my mind. I mean, the, the cover of your book and her in that dress are two identical. And I just thought, what is the meta value on, on this experience for you? Like, how crazy must this feel to see this depicted in this way? I need a beat. I need a beat. Thank you for asking that question. And I will try to be as articulate as I can about an experience that kind of defies articulation. (laughs) And specifically to the moment that you just referred to. Yeah. The wedding moment. There's four places in the series that are almost frame by frame recreations four places in the series and one of them is the wedding scene and Zoe is wearing an exact replica of my wedding dress and when I saw her come on set wearing it I I I was I have a therapist (laughs) (laughs) I have a therapist and I have a lot of people in my life and so I was sort of intellectually prepared okay as a widowed person like okay I know and as a producer I was like I know that the actor who's doing I know like we all are in agreement that we are recreating like so I'm on board intellectually for all of that but then the human widowed part of me to actually see it and to be triggered by it I had a 
Now I have to process that experience as a human being. All, yes, I know intellectually we're playing and this is all in the professional realm, but now I'm actually having a very human experience of, of trigger, of being thrown off, of like not understanding actually what is actually happening here, but we're on the set and there's hundreds of people and if people yeah. are asking me questions, but I'm also like, ah. Like wedding dress, yeah. So I have my sister. Yes, she my co-produces producer. with you. Yeah, and oh. she's a showrunner. And so I had someone sitting next to me who with a look could look at me and go, I know what you're going through right mm. now. And she grabbed my hand and she held on, t- she just held it so tight. And I felt so supported and so seen. And I was like, I, this is going to be okay. Like, we're going to do this. And we, and I kept coming back. And so I had throughout the filming moments like that, where it would just be like, I got to hold your hand because this is uncharted territory. No one here is having the exact experience I'm having. I also don't have anyone in my life that I can reach out to. Like, oh my God, you've had this happen to you before. So tell me what to do. No one, there's no one. 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 So I'm in uncharted territory. And what I would do in moments like that in the filming, is I would step away from set. And often I would find a quiet place, sometimes under a tree, sometimes in a quiet room. When we are filming in the hospital, I went to an upper floor of the hospital and I would say a prayer. I would say a prayer for all that was, all that is, and all that ever will be that is bigger than my understanding and intellectual capacity. And I would just stand in gratitude for all the forces that came to be to allow this moment. And so, and also acknowledge the humility and the gratitude that all of these people, all the 200 or so people who were on set at that moment in service of a love story and in service of a memory of Sato. And I thought, well, this is a trigger for sure, but it's also something kind of beautiful. And so both things are happening. I'm both triggered and honored. I am both in gratitude and in awe. I want to cry, but I also want to smile. And my experience of writing the series and filming the series, and even through post-production, has had all of those ups and downs. And often this feeling's happening, layering, happening on top of one another. I'm in the middle of the last edits of my memoir and the experience of my mom's death and then checking myself into an inpatient center and coming out the other side in, you know, more in the grief world. And I think as I've been watching the series, what it, what really strikes me like as a human is kind of like the courage that it would take to allow this to unfold in this way. And I mean that really genuinely because there's some terror involved in taking the holy element of your truth and allowing people like handing it right in morsels for people to connect to and watching that, you know, because I was so touched by your book and, and watching, watching this go even another, like another more visceral layer. Like, again, I just, I paused when the, when she came out in the dress and, and I'm not you. So the, the courage that it takes to face the intensity of that, I, you know, you know, TV is TV and movies are movies and actors are actors, but 
at the base and the, and the, is the story is the love story and is the loss. And I, you know, I just deeply, I feel it now. I just really deeply felt like Jesus, she gave this to us. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. For seeing that. Thank you for acknowledging that. The book was an offering and a share and my most heartfelt inner place, right? It's my soul on the page. And then when we moved to, when we were given the opportunity to put this on the screen, I understood that I was being given a new opportunity, but also that it would have to go deeper in a certain way. Not it's deep on the page, but I meant it would have to go deeper insofar as I was inviting others into the space and inducting others. And I understood that the only reason to put this on the screen, because the story has been told, it's already, I've done my part as the writer and as the woman who lived it, like my story is on the page. Like the only reason to put this on the screen is if in some way, the story on screen, the series can be soul medicine for the world. Yeah, And I, I say that because I'm someone who is driven by, and I know this about myself, you call it courage, but what is behind the courage is kind of a purity of purpose. Yeah, And the purity of purpose for me was the hope, the hope yeah. that the series, if it came together well, and if it were, that it could be soul medicine for the world. And the fact that then we began, we were writing part of it, even during the pandemic, I thought, God, if this thing ever really takes off and is actually filmed, it might actually really mean and touch, touch people. So with that knowledge, that's a part of how I would get the courage day after day to do the hard work. I will never, ever not acknowledge the hard emotional labor of what filming this was. But in the hardest parts, I always knew it was about the love and it was about an act of service. And that for whatever reason, my story at this moment in time in the human continuum was given this platform to sort of play itself out. Then you know what? I'm going to lay it all out on the table and I'm going to give myself the support that I need in my personal life to do that work. I'm going to rest when this is all done. (laughs) Yeah, you are. I'm going to rest. I'm going to rest. Yeah. But, but gosh, life is full and can be beautiful and exciting and full of beautiful things. And, 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 and in coming together in community and in sharing with the other artists, the other creatives, the other writers, the producers, the set masters, the cinematographers, the costume designers, the all of the, the editors, everyone on that team was that suddenly this one singular experience became everyone's experience. And I felt less alone. Yeah, that own- I believe. That I believe the less alone, right? Like, I think that's why we sometimes, you know, I think it's fine for people to want to share it in a room with their therapist and, you know, share it with one person. I think for some people, the magnitude, it needs to be held by even more folks than that. And there's two things that you said that I just want to highlight. One is the notion of having your sister with you. You know, when people ask me, like, how do people get through this? 
and, and often people don't have sisters. They don't have a best friend. They don't, but you know, I've had a client who literally used to text her doorman, just one other person on the planet who knows who can see this moment right now is really hard for me is the thing that we can use to connect us to the human experience in a way that makes it bigger than us. Right. And one, one of the things I do on my platform is highlight when I think a movie or a TV show is doing a good job with grief because there is so much garbage out there, right? Like there's so many TV shows that are still talking about the five stages of grief, you know, which to me is like, listen, that's like saying the world is flat. Like you shouldn't be able to say that on television anymore because it's, it actually does people damage to keep reiterating. Sure. Something. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. But I was so excited when I saw that it was eight episodes, right? Because a movie is two hours and this is eight hours. And yeah. when you're really wanting to honor, right? There's 9.1 million people at a low estimate who are grieving the loss of a loved one since COVID began. Right. That is that's enough. just stateside. That's just that's stateside. Just stateside. That's, that's, that's not that's, globally. That's just, no, that's not even close to global. And so being able to say to all of the folks who are turning on Netflix in this country and saying, we're going to take you slowly through Yes. So that you can see and feel, and, and people often say to me like, well, listen, you know, I'm not grieving, but what do I do to support my person? And I say the same things, which is like, pick up a memoir because that person has worked unbelievably hard and dragged themselves to the bottom of the pool and back up to get you to under, you know, the words that you need to, to connect with. You can listen to a podcast, like one of these where people are over the course of an hour, they're going to tell you the real story. And then I do often sort of highlight, like, here's some people that I think are getting it right. The words in your book are all over the Netflix series. It's all in there. And it feels to me like, yes, I imagine it must be excruciating at moments, but I know that you, that you worked with Reese Witherspoon's production company. I can see the, you know, the integrity of the whole team and the actors, like, it feels like an Italian meal, like slow and handmade in this way so that we can luxuriate and really get the taste that's real. And they're just tell me, they're not a lot of series or movies that have given us that, that have said, we're going to slow this down because I imagine what Hollywood is saying, like, uh-huh. as, as I had someone say in my memoir, like you can't put this chapter after this chapter, it's too relentlessly miserable. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's the way it was though. It really was that miserable. So if I lose some readers, I need to, but, but I am really grateful that this is slow and rich and all the way, all the way down and all the way back up. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. We definitely were Attica, my sister, my co-creator and the showrunner of our series, along with our writers and producers, but Attica and I were very clear in our hope that the series use the word luxuriate but that each episode gets a little deeper, a little deeper, a little deeper, that the series is growing up, that the characters is is growing up as the series grows up and grows deeper, right? And so it's a slow burn, but it's a slow burn for a reason. Things are gonna happen that you don't expect because life happens that way. You're gonna laugh, you're gonna cry. And sometimes in the same scene, because life happens that way. That's right. We're gonna take our time. We're gonna take our time And it's a kind of storytelling and an approach to storytelling 
that is both my sensibility and also my sister's sensibility, and that we wanted to make something that one, I would recognize as both a Hollywood professional for 20 plus years as an actor, that I wanted to see the thing that I hadn't seen in the way that I hadn't seen it, but also as the storyteller and as the grieving, as the person who wrote it and who lived through it, I wanted it to unfold and unfurl, as you said, like an Italian meal, and that it is giving you the unexpected, it's giving you the beauty, it's giving you the bitter and the sweet. And so, yes, sometimes we were asked to rush things along or cut something that was like, no, no, no. Like, and we were doing a lot of educating along the way. That's right. Saying, no, 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 hang out with us. No, 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 no. Trust us, please. Yep. We invite you to think about this differently. And we had in our creative partners, both Hello Sunshine and Netflix and Cinestar. Zoe, our you know lead actress, works with her sisters who are also her producing partners. So as a team, we were yep. able to say, this matters and for this reason, and we need to take our time with this. Because I also understood I wanted to hopefully create something that people can watch five years from now, 10 yeah. years from now, 15 years from now, and it still resonates. This is the way I circle back to things like terms of endearment and Absolutely. I can still watch it oh and I God, go, oh my God, it feels time. true. It That's feels right. true. It feels real. I want it to be in, we hoped our show would live in that artistic mm. space. I'm going to ask you the question that everybody always asks when I have authors on. They, they ask the questions of how did the rest of the people deal with their descriptions and their casting and their, and I'm, I'm interested <laughs> in what you're, because, because one of the things that I think the Netflix series really does sort of do slowly is give you a little bit more time to expand his family and your family. But like, you know, did Attica get to cast herself in the show? Is she happy with the descriptions? Is that, you know, Yes. Like? So, so here's the thing in the book, in the form of everybody was happy with the book, everybody who yep. read it happy with the book. All That's good. right. And then when we got to the series, so Attic and I co-wrote it and co-created together. So we're co-creating the characters that are sort yep. of sketches of us and our relationship. And yes, we both knew immediately Danielle Deadweiler, who's the woman who plays Zora, who's the character of Attica, my sister in the series. We knew instantly she was the person because she just had this kind of energetic quality that we were looking for, which is the both the humor and the pathos, the sort of wry sense of humor, the fact that she could, you know, make us go deep and then hold it lightly all like an instant. So, and also we told our families that the people on screen, and this is one of the reasons why we changed the names yeah. of the characters yeah. for the series, yeah. is we knew that they were going to have to do things that never happened in real Make life. It, it was going to have That's to be good. They we're going to have to turn up the drama. Yeah. It's going to have to Hollywood it a little yeah. bit, right? And so yeah. I didn't want my parents to be beholden to sort of things that happen on screen for these characters. So we changed all the names and we told our family, look, there's going to be more drama than ever happened right. but on screen, but we're going to maintain the truth, the energetic truth and the emotional truth of everything. And so everybody's, you know, totally fine with it. It gets to be fun. We yeah. have to wrap up just because we've talked about grief as also having this really hopeful note. I know that you have had some really exciting changes in your, in your love life. Do you want to just share that with folks? Yeah, I am happy to say I have repartnered 
which is not something I ever imagined or, you know, could not have wrapped my mind around, but even the possibility of that. But I'm very grateful for that. My daughter is doing well. And, you know, there are people, and I'm specifically speaking to widowed people who may choose or want or desire a repartnership in their life. And there are many widowed people I meet who don't. And either is fine. It is very personal. But if that is something you want, I could not have imagined it. And you may be at a place where you can't imagine it for yourself. But if it is something that you hold out hope for, it's okay. And I say, it's okay. And I'm going to repeat that. It's okay to want it, to ask for it and to seek it. Yeah. I I love that. I love that. I love the way that you put that, which is, you know, there isn't only one happy ending and it isn't all a Hollywood romantic movie about love and happy ever after. But I do think the idea of, of, of trauma is that we don't want the trauma to be the last story. We don't want the bad thing that happened to be the moment that we stopped living life. And so being able to, to hear, even in your own personal story that you are over there living your extraordinary life. I thought one of the ways I can honor Sato's life and the love he had for me, which may sound strange to say was to keep living. Yeah. And in in so doing to honor him every step of the way, to honor the life and the dreams we had, he, his name is a name that comes up frequently in our home. It comes, he comes up in conversations with my husband now. (laughs) So it's, it's that it is, it is not an either or. Yeah. Both and. It's a both and. Yeah. This has been such a generous, gorgeous conversation. I'm going to link in the show notes, everything about the new series and the book. And I know you and I are going to continue conversations because we've got crossover with Greek leadership stuff, but it has been such an incredible delight to spend the hour with you. I'm really grateful for what you've offered us in the, in the world and in the, particularly in the grief world. And I, I wish you a little rest, even though I know you're on the juggernaut of promoting everything and um, just really good luck. Thank you, Megan. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for the work you do as, you know, bringing a kind of an awareness and holding space for grief in a society that can be grief phobic, but that this is the most universal experience that we, that any of us can have. So thank you for, for this delightful conversation. Thank Thank you. you. All right. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye.